Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation, back in Studio A in downtown Jersey City in the great state of New Jersey. Thank you for being with me. And thanks again, as I said last week, to all of the generous listeners who made our recent fundraising marathon a success, including everyone who uh, directed their pledge towards Tectonic. I very much appreciate that. The marathon is always a a really fun time. It's always um, inspirational. I was just uh, telling some of my friends here at the station how much I enjoy listening to WFMU during the marathon. I listen to a lot of shows um, mainly, I mean, I, partly because I love the shows on a, on a normal day, but also because of the DJ pairings, just to hear two DJs together and how they interact is always interesting. And so coming off of the fundraising marathon, last week's show uh, was obviously the, the, the first show after the marathon. And I wanted to do something that was topical and timely and uh, and, 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 and sort of fun. And so I was very happy to have Damon Krakowski on the show. You may know him from Galaxy 500 and Damon and Naomi, and he's been on the show now uh, twice, and he's been on a bunch of shows here at WFMU over the years. Anyway, we talked about band, the Bandcamp purchase by Epic Games and how Bandcamp still, for now, is, uh, seems to be a better alternative than Spotify. And we went into some detail about the malfeasance of Spotify and <laughs> why I recommend that you avoid Spotify if you can. Why am I telling you about last week's show? There's a, there's a specific reason why I told you about the, the lightness and the fun of the marathon and how we went into this, this fun post-marathon show with Damon Krakowski. The reason I'm telling you that is because tonight's show is different in its, in its vibe, if I may. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a different environment uh, that we're going to cover this evening on the show. And if what I'm about to tell you seems too intense or it bothers you uh, or for, for any reason you'd rather not listen to it, I can't blame you because it is grim what I'm going to tell you and what my guest this evening is going to talk about. But if, <clears throat> excuse me, if you feel like the topic is too intense, what I would like you to do And no harm done, go to the archives (laughs) at WFMU.org, or you can find them at tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H, tonic.fm. And you can find last week's show, the March 21, uh, 2022 show, and listen to my interview with Damon Krakowski, if, if you missed it last week. And that will be your show for this evening, and that is fine with me if you feel like that's best, because the source material, what we're talking about, as I say, is uh, dark and grim to a degree that <clears throat> I'm not sure I have uh, I have encountered in over four years of this show. Uh, okay, so is that enough of a prelude and uh, and 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 a and, and a warning of sorts? Uh, let, let's move on. My my guest this evening, and I'm, I am very happy to feature this guest. His name is Ethan Gutman. He is a journalist and an author and a uh, key to our topic tonight, he is a human rights researcher. Now, his focus over the years has been on China, and there is a lot of human rights work that has gone on, you know, from Ethan Gutman and many, many, many others over the years having to do with China. And uh, he wrote a book uh, some years ago called The Slaughter. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to read off the subtitle, and it's going to tell you what The Slaughter is about. It's called The Slaughter, Mass Killings, Organ Harvesting, and China's Secret Solution to Its Dissident Problem. Again, that's a book called The Slaughter by Ethan Gutman. You can see a link to it 
on the playlist at WFMU.org. Now, uh, that was Ethan's book from several years ago. It got an update, and now he's working on a new book that is largely devoted, as I understand it, to the, the, the same sorts of topics, uh, specifically focused on organ harvesting of dissidents. But now that China apparently has changed its focus to the Uyghur Muslims in the northwest region in Xinjiang, uh, Gutman is doing research on the activity, on the organ harvesting activity that's going on there, whereas the, the previous book, The Slaughter, was more about religious minorities, mostly Falun Gong and also some Christians uh, being murdered uh, by the state for their, for their ar- uh, organs to, to then be uh, sold off. Now, um, if that was the entire story, I probably would not do an episode of Tectonic. I, th- I st- still think it's worth knowing about, worth studying, worth being aware of, but it may not have been a topic for a Tectonic episode except for the second half of the interview in which Ethan Gutman talks about the digital spycraft that is necessary for human rights work, especially in recent years as he's working on this new book. And it's, again, focused on what's happening in the northwest region of Xinjiang. And as he is going to describe to us, he has to take extraordinary measures to get close. He doesn't go into China, but he gets close he goes. He goes to the Chinese border in in the stands, I'm, I, and I'm I'm not even clear which stand it is, but it's one of the one or more of the border countries. And he'll go into some detail about that. But what what Gutman likes to do is he likes to talk to refugees, individuals who have been in the camps. Uh, so the the situation, as you'll hear, is that there are essentially uh, concentration camps a vast series of concentration camps in the northwest region of China called Xinjiang, uh, mostly populated by Uyghur Muslims. Uh, There's Kazakhs as well. And if this sounds familiar, I've done two prior shows on this, most recently with Darren Byler. You can find it in the archives. Darren Byler wrote a book called In the Camps, and previous to that, um, a a book called Made in China by Amelia Pong, both of whom talk about what, what's happening there. And you can go find those shows in the playlist themselves, have links for, for far more reading if you're interested. The point here is that for Ethan Gutman to get close to the Chinese border to gain access to some of these refugees from the camps who have some knowledge about others, uh, other prisoners uh, being murdered for their organs, uh, um, Gutman has to take extraordinary measures to evade, uh, not capture necessarily, but evade detection by the surveillance state. And so the Chinese surveillance state and the digital surveillance state that is now spreading beyond the Chinese borders, and I will make, I'll, if we have time, I'll try to make a point at the end of the show that it is beginning to take shape here in the U.S. as well. Uh, that is a new entrant on the stage, whereas Ethan Gutman was able to do direct research more easily for, uh, for the slaughter, for his, for his prior book. Now that the digital surveillance state is more or less in place, it is very difficult to get physically close to the country, close enough that you can talk to refugees and protect them so that their, they, their safety is intact and the safety of their families back at home in China uh, is also in, intact. Um, so the first half is going to talk about the organ harvesting itself, and the second half is going to put it into more of a tectonic perspective of talking about his research on the organ harvesting in context of the surveillance state, the digital surveillance state that has been built with the help, I'll say, of American big tech firms uh, in uh, Chinese Communist Party-controlled China. If you'd like to join in the live listener chat, you can go to WFMU.org, click Playlists and Comments, and let's go ahead and listen to my interview with Ethan Gutman here on Tectonic on WFMU. Ethan Gutman, welcome to Tectonic. Thank you. Great to be here. It's nice to have you on the show. You're a journalist who has written a number of articles and books over the years, much of them about China, 
and the activities of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, you had a 2004 book called Losing the New China, which was about American tech company complicity in building China's Chinese Communist Party-controlled internet. Then in 2014, you wrote a book called The Slaughter. It had an update in 2016 about organ harvesting in China. And you're currently working on a new book based on interviews with Uyghur and Kazakh refugees titled The Xinjiang Procedure. Maybe we can start there, Ethan. What is the new book about, The Xinjiang Procedure? Well, I think one of the problems with uh, publishers initially was they sort of said, how is this different from the last book you wrote? Because it's also connected into organ harvesting. What makes the book quite different is actually, it's about process. The process of writing The Slaughter was not that difficult. It just required going around the world and finding refugees, Falun Gong refugees, in some cases Uyghur refugees, even occasionally Tibetans or House Christians. These are all people who were harvested for their organs, or groups that were harvested for their organs. Obviously, nobody who's been harvested for their organs lives to tell the tale and so forth. But, you know, these, these people were out there. And that meant I had to go to Hong Kong, which back then was no big deal. Uh, you could go to Australia, you go to Thailand, you go to D Japan or, or Taiwan, Canada, America, whatever, all over Europe. The point is, none of this was that difficult. Since that time, China has become far more professional. The world has changed. Wraparound surveillance has become much, much more common especially throughout any region which was you know, Russian or controlled by Russia or controlled by the Soviet Union at one time or another, and obviously any area which is in China's interests, uh, which the Chinese consider to be in their sphere of interest in some way or another. Basically, the, the, in a nutshell, what used to be human rights work has now, by necessity, become a kind of spy craft. It's closer to that than what we think of as human rights work, which is sort of, you know, maternal or holistic or, or, or you know, any of these things. It's, it's not really about that anymore. It is simply about getting to the witness, getting them to anonymously talk to you, because the chances that they can actually say their name or even actually use their voice in, in a way that's not disguised. No, these people, all of these people have families or friends of somebody they care about. And that person is potentially under control of China. Let's talk about the situation in Xinjiang. I have covered this on a number of past programs. Most recently, back in January, I spoke with Darren Byler, who wrote a book called In the Camps, China's High-Tech Penal Colony. And we talked about how an estimated possibly million Uyghurs, mostly, and Kazakhs are locked up in detention camps and so-called re-education camps and engage in forced labor. The forced labor was the subject of Amelia Pong's book, Made in China, which I covered last June. What you're telling us about, Ethan, based on your years of research now, is layered into that camp system in Xinjiang of forced labor and surveillance but also includes organ harvesting. It's, it's, this is one of the more grim topics I've covered in an interview in over four years of the show, but it's important to at least tell the truth about what's going on. Can you just give yeah. us a sense of what's happening there and why would the Chinese Communist Party want to engage in a systematized process of, of harvesting organs. It's, that's just terrible. Let's start with the why first, because I think that's the most important component of any research, really. And it's usually the last thing you, you kind of concentrate on. But as I say, it's, it's, it's critical. There are really three reasons why the Chinese state has been engaging in organ harvesting since about 1995, 1994. When I say organ harvesting, I'm not talking about the organ harvesting of criminals, of somebody who was a uh, killer or somebody who was a rapist or something or whatever. These are not death row prisoners. We are talking about political and religious prisoners specifically, people who under most countries' laws really haven't done anything wrong. Okay, uh, They just have a different belief. 
and maybe they're they're uh, or they have a different ethnicity, like for example, Uyghur or Kyrgyz or Kazakh or Hui. In this case, you know they're also they're Muslims. Now, in that, there's three reasons why you'd want to go after them. The first reason is really obvious: it's money. If you sell to a foreign organ tourist, now this is an ideal situation. I want you to understand this isn't the common sale. But if you're selling to a foreign organ tourist, you can sell a heart for at least $150,000 minimum. You can sell each lung for about $125,000 to $150,000 each. You probably get a little bit of a better value if you have both lungs replaced. And that was done with many COVID patients, for example. Uh, liver, about $100,000 approximately. Kidneys, somewhere about $40,000, $50,000 in there, sort of kidney replacement. Finally, these aren't organs, they're tissues, but the uh, corneas are about 30000 each. So you're looking at well over half a million dollars, in a sense, that one person contains. Now, I'm not saying you can take all those organs from a single person and get them to a rich organ tourist from Saudi Arabia or from Japan that quickly or that efficiently, and that the, the organs only have a limited time to live, although they found ways to expand that time. But the profits are pretty huge, potentially. So that's number one. And these people are kind of healthy because they're not regular prisoners. They don't have hepatitis. They've never done drugs, okay? If they're Uyghurs, they probably smoked and drank uh, because most Uyghurs are not very strict Muslims on those uh, things. If they're Falun Gong, they didn't even smoke and drink. And many Christians, too. I'd say that's probably true for many Christians and Tibetans as well. So these are fairly healthy. Uh, so it's good value. Okay, and the uh, organ transplant system in China v values itself as a good value and a reliable uh, system. Now, there's another aspect, which is these are the state; these are state enemies. The reason why these people have been exposed to this activity is because the the state is trying to thin their ranks. It's trying to cull them. It may not be trying to kill them all off, but that leads to the third point. The third point is what is the preferred age? For organ harvesting and it's about 28 years old 29 28 right in there it could go as low as 25 it can go as high as 35 but 28 according to the chinese medical literature is when they prefer it's when your organs have matured fully matured but your body has not started to deteriorate you are at your peak of health and these are the perfect organs well that also happens to coincide with revolutionary tendencies when are you the most the most viable as a you know as somebody who can really shake up society? You're about 28, 29. Your your intellect is matured to a certain extent, and you're and you're at the peak of health. So these aren't just normal people. They're they're at a particularly dangerous age by Chinese Communist Party standards. What is the basis for your knowledge about what's happening there? You mentioned the interviews. Can you give some sense of the scale of the interviews over what period yeah. and because I'm, I'm sure there are going to be some listeners who say, who is this guy? Does he have an agenda? Is this really true? Maybe it happened once, but is there really a systematic, explicit process of, of doing this in China to political prisoners? Well, there's two ways of, of there's two forms, major forms of proof, and they're both fairly difficult, and they required a lot of work over a lot of time by a lot of different people. For anybody who's really a doubter, they just ought to look at the London China Tribunal of two, the final judgment on 2021, which was the most extensive independent study of this issue. Uh, so we have documentation on that side. I would say the other side, and the side I've always concentrated on, has been witnesses. We have many, many accounts, or I have many accounts, of Falun Gong and Uyghurs who were tested. And it was very clear they were being tested for their organs. The tests were very specific. In some cases, they were told explicitly in kind of a threatening or jokey way that they were going to take their organs. So this is not, a, it's, it's not actually a big secret in the camps of Xinjiang. And it wasn't a big secret at the end of the, in the latter years of the Falun Gong persecution. I tend to put the most stock in the witnesses. I find them the most interesting. I can argue with them, talk to them. I can, I can spend hours with them. And if I think they're evading something or evading my questions or giving me a story, 
I will simply sit there for 12 hours if necessary. And if they keep telling me the same stupid story and it's not true, I'm still here just looking at them. Like, when are you going to tell me your story? Okay. So I, I put a lot of stock in the witnesses, but I understand why some people prefer to rely on the evidence coming out of journals and so forth. I think that's perfectly legitimate as well. The fact is the two sides back each other up. So the evidence here has been quite clear for a number of years that this has been going on. But you asked about the scale. The bulk of these organs, 28 years old, they're coming from the Uyghurs now. They were coming from Falun Gong. The Falun Gong got older over time. They started to run out about 2013. They start dragging them out of their houses, giving them uh, blood tests and DNA tests, even though they're not imprisoned or anything. And then what happens in 2014? They start giving health checks to all the Uyghurs. 13, 14 million Uyghur people were given full examinations. By 2015, examinations are finished. By 2016, the camps are built. This is a fairly regimented and rational system that we're looking at here. So you're saying that based on data you've seen, it appears that organ harvesting is increasing, right? Or No, no, I wouldn't say it's absolutely increasing. I'd say it's holding steady, and here's why I'd say that. There is only one way that I know of to actually get numbers of the dead or a range of people who are being harvested every year. You must talk to witnesses from the camps. So back when it was fallen gone, it was forced labor camps. Now they call them re-education camps. They're in Xinjiang or what the Uyghurs call East Turkestan. And that is where they test them. They test them and then people disappear. Now, the vast majority of the Uyghurs who've made it out, or Kazakhs even, who've made it out, are in Kazakhstan. And they have not made it over to the West. They cannot speak freely. They're usually scared they're going to be sent back to China. And what we have is a a bunch of witnesses who are too scared to talk in many cases. But I was able to interview about 12 of them, okay? And if you add that to the approximately 9 to 10 people who have made it over to the West, I was able to come up with some calculations based on missing people, people who go missing after camp-wide physical exam. It's amazing because I did not talk to a single person who'd been in the same camp as another. In other words, every single one of these people was in a completely different camp. And they all described 2.5% to 5% of the people in the camp who are 28 years old or approximately that age go missing, are taken in the middle of the night every year. Now, they all expressed that in a different way. Some expressed in a three-month period. Some expressed it a monthly doesn't matter. It's always easy to make that calculation, and the calculation is so similar. One guy said 20% of his camp went missing, so he's an outlier. One guy said nobody in the camp went missing, and he's the other outlier, and he was in a purely Kazakh camp. As possible, that's true. But the bottom line is the figures were very, very close to each other. Now, these I rarely ask people, do you know why they went missing? Sometimes I'd ask them that, but I never push the subject. I would just simply say, what happened? Did you have a physical exam? Yes. And then these people went missing? Yes. And what were they like? Okay, well, it's in one case, it was three women who went missing about a week after the physical exam. And I said to the woman, um, you know, this is a kind of rude question, but were these women beautiful? Were they good looking? Were they, I'll be blunt, were they sexually attractive? She says... You know, this is not a nice thing to say about anybody. No, these women were not particularly beautiful at all. And I said, okay, then what did they have in common? Did they have anything in common? And she said they were healthy. So this is what we're looking at. Those numbers, if you accept that there are a million people in the camp, and most Uyghur activists would claim it's more like 3 million, but let's go with a million. That's about twenty-five to 50,000 people every year. It's very hard to calculate that. We don't know it. But I think it's an accurate count. There's one other piece of evidence, which I think bridges the gap between both the witness and the uh, and documentation. I wish I could do this one visually for you, but there is a place, a guy had been in a camp in Aksu, in Aksu province, and it's near a city named Aksu. His camp was built around a transplant hospital, the Aksu Infection Hospital. So what we have with this camp 
is about 33,000 people. Right next to it is another camp, about a half kilometer away, 16,000 people. To the north, less than a kilometer away, is an enormous crematorium. This is one uh, we know that there was orders were given, and this was public. Uh, it was discovered by a Radio Free Asia reporter. Orders were given to build nine crematoriums of scale in Xinjiang region. The first one that opened up was in Urumqi. Uh, we've looked at that crematorium closely, but the other thing I've done is gone and interviewed people from Aksu. I was talking to them about forced labor. Uh, I ran into them in Turkey. I can't give their names, but I have their recorded voices. And I'd say, do you know anything about this? Have you ever driven on this road? That's all I asked. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, that road. I drove on it all the time. And I said, do you know this place? And they said, yeah, that's the crematorium. Okay. So, and they said, yeah, I know, always knew I was there because of the smell. The smell smells like, you know, he said, it's like nothing else. It's like a kind of burnt hair, kind of a sweet smell. I mean, you know, they describe all the things you associate with death in a single word. They said that the people complain about the smell here. Both of them, I actually had two witnesses that confirmed this, this stench coming out of this crematorium. Now, I'm not saying that thing is operating at full volume. But I will say one other thing. 20 minutes away, you have an airport, the Aksu International Airport. That has a green lane. A green lane, it is a special fast lane, and it literally says, for human organs. Okay, for human organs. It says it in English. It says it in Chinese. It says it in a stylized Uyghur script. These have been built all over the place, but they've been particularly built in Arumchi, in uh, Kajgar, in uh, airports in Xinjiang. And they only show there is no green lane for incoming. There's only a green lane for outgoing. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host. We are halfway through my interview with Ethan Gutman, journalist, author, and human rights researcher talking about his research into uh, organ harvesting in China at the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. It was the topic of his book a few years ago called The Slaughter, and now he is working on a new book that focuses on organ harvesting at the camps in Xinjiang, targeting Uyghur Muslims. And in this second half of the interview, he's going to talk about the difficulty of conducting his research these days, given the growth of the digital surveillance state in China and the measures he has to take, which he calls digital spycraft, in which, well, the same measures that any human rights researcher is going to have to use if they want to do their work these days. Stay with us here on Tectonic on WFMU. Tell me a little bit about getting yourself into Xinjiang to conduct some of these interviews. What was your intent in in taking that trip or those trips? I don't know how many times you've done this. And and how did you get yourself in and and back out? First of all, I I don't... uh go into Xinjiang. I wouldn't go into China even if I was allowed to. Uh, after my first book, I was basically uh, banned from China. But more than that, if I were to go into China, all I do is get people in trouble. Uh, I get them, it's like condemning people to death for them to talk to me. So I would never do that. I wouldn't. I will not go into China. I would never go into Xinjiang. What I was able to do was go into Kazakhstan, which doesn't sound all that dangerous, but I think you have to understand that this is a high surveillance environment, not as high as Xinjiang, not as high as China itself, but it's up there. And it's largely the surveillance in this case is largely comes from Russia. And there are no slouches in this department either. So the way to do it, and this may be sort of connects into maybe your thoughts a little bit or your philosophy. The main thing I had to do was shut off all devices completely. And the other important thing was not to come in through an airplane. The best way to do that, 
And the only way I could really figure out to do that was to take on a kind of different identity. So I took my foster daughter, who was, 20, was 24 at the time, so now she's 26, and she it's a very nice-looking young woman. I bought her a very funny furry hat, and I bought a furry hat, and we put skis on top of the car, uh, German plates. We drove from Frankfurt to Almaty in uh, Kazakhstan. Uh, we took trucker ferries across the Black Sea, and then finally we arrived from Azerbaijan to Kazakhstan by a ferry, another trucker ferry, which doesn't even have a schedule. But when we got off that, they do a very rigorous check of you. And apparently everything we had done, the precautions we'd taken, worked. Because basically, it, I said, we're on our way to Mongolia. We're going to ski in Kazakhstan. But then we're going to have the bragging rights that we skied in Mongolia too. The main thing was not to look like reporters at all. The other thing was we'd, we'd used GPS, her GPS, specifically from Europe. But then when we got to the ferry, we turned everything off and we never turned the devices on again until the very end of our trip. But basically until the very end of when we were actually leaving the country. The point was that you had to disappear from an electronic standpoint. They do do a scan of your face when you enter the country. Most of these countries do that. Azerbaijan did it. Kazakhstan definitely did it. Now, the only trouble then is you have to make your way across a country with a map and a compass. And there, I'm 63. I've got an advantage. I've done that before. And it turns out my foster daughter was a very good map reader as well. She was very good at saying, no, no, that's where the train line's supposed to be, on that side of the car. And pretty soon we'll cross over to the other side. And thankfully, we had a very nice German map. And it took, I believe, several weeks to cross the country. It was particularly difficult to find any kind of uh, places to stay, that kind of thing. Accommodation, feeding ourselves was a real problem. And the fear that we would run out of gas in the desert was really quite terrifying. But that never happened. We did have a reserve tank the whole time, and we never ended up having to use it. But basically what came out of that was we got to Almaty, and we only had burner phones. And we used our burner phones to call a fixer. We had two fixers in Almaty. And we called them when we got to Almaty. And they said, where have you been? You're three days late. You know, you, you terrified everybody. And I said, he said, where are you? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> I'm in Almaty. I think, we're, I think we're, we're next to a karaoke bar. I mean, that's all I knew. Anyways, eventually we met up and it took a, a while, but they had got us a, a safe apartment. Our names weren't on it. And we were able to start pulling witnesses in there and interviewing them you know, with tea and the whole thing. And we had uh, one of the pictures would go out and meet them in a mall, in a shopping mall, and bring them in. This became our method of interviewing people. And we took tremendous precautions not to get anyone hurt. And at the time, they even seemed a little excessive. But now that the majority of those witnesses have all been sent back to China, it doesn't seem excessive to me at all. Now, they haven't been sent back to China because of me, or our interviews, our interviews were never intercepted. We never sent them out. We actually did keep them, which was a little, perhaps a little foolhardy. We kept them on uh, data sticks, and we scrambled the data sticks with all kinds of, oh, just anything we could think of to make them difficult to sort of see that there were sound files that were different than others. Uh, and we crossed borders with those. So now, now today I would do that a little differently. Uh, and the idea of driving through a, the Russian border, for example, with that material, to me, seems foolhardy, but we did get away with it. But at the time, my main feeling was we have to get off the grid. We have to stay off the grid. We have to completely disappear from the grid because this is a country which has given up on informers. It really doesn't use informers. It's nothing but electronic surveillance. So that was the main goal to get in and to do it for the witness's safety. Uh, we'd used only black and white film. We never used digital cameras. We used a Canon camera. The assumption there was that the patients needed to actually develop a roll of film was something that most border patrols don't have these days. In other words, they're happy to look through your pictures if they're digital. Uh, the other devices we used were um, 
basically Faraday cages for the devices. There's a German company called Stalin, which makes very nice leather pouches. Basically, I, I guess it's all tinfoil or metal inside, Stalin, steel. And we use those to try to get people to give up their cell phones before they got into the apartment. They say that one of the sayings is that you can always find a safe house by people switching off all their cell phones. So we wanted to get away from that as much as possible. And so we tried to get them to put them in the Stalin bags before we got there. And these are very nice bags. They're very, very well done. They also contributed, uh, contributed to this investigation. There's another, one more device I think that was absolutely critical, a dictaphone. So if I really felt like the interview was super, super sensitive, and if it were to get out, it could, you know, people would get killed or something or thrown into the camps. It, the dictaphone or the tape recorder, little mini tape recorder with mini tapes, is useful because you can record the person and it's just sitting there on that dictaphone. Now, before I left Kazakhstan, I ripped the guts out of the dictaphone, made it impossible to use so that if somebody were to try to play it at the border, it would not work. So they'd have to find another dictaphone. Considering how long it took me on eBay to find a working dictaphone, I think they'd have some, some problems doing that. Since then, I've changed, and I now send out information using a system called Trezorit, where you can sort of store things. It's a, point, it's a part of the cloud. They claim it's absolutely secure. I don't think. I think it probably is. But anyways, I've taken my chances with that instead. You know, the advantage of that is you can get rid of the stuff on your computers and you don't have anything incriminating on your computer. So you can use your computers, although I still wouldn't use one in Kazakhstan. It's too developed. It's too much of a surveillance state. It is interesting, though, that the secure technologies that you favor, other than that super, what they claim to be secure cloud service, everything else is non-digital. I mean, if you really want to be secure... Get yourself off of the internet. Go back to analog cameras and dictaphones. It is the safest method out there. Analog cameras, dictaphones, just throw it away. And look, I mean, this is sort of interesting, but and I can't talk too much about this, but there is a witness we got out of Central Asia recently. The one thing that distinguishes this person is that they never used a cell phone the entire time, a mobile phone. They just didn't have one. And they were in one of the stands, one of the stand countries. And unlike everybody else I met, they weren't using one. And they insisted that I come over with no devices at all, except I did bring the dictaphone, which they didn't mind. That's the person who we could get out, probably because they disappeared off the grid. And, you know, I really feel like uh, these devices are, I mean, obviously they're very useful. I mean, you can find a restaurant on them. You can find a place to sleep tonight. You can find where you are in the city. It's a, They're amazing, but they also are poison. They are simply poison. They are tracking devices. They're consistently tracking you. Now, it's true that in a, in a place like Tajikistan, which does not have the electronic surveillance, you can get away with using a device and, you know, with a dual-core VPN. And, you know, if you're very careful... And you, you know, avoid social media completely, don't even turn it on, take it off the device completely, and just use maybe one secure system like Threema. I favor Threema, but lots of people favor Signal. And you just use that as a method to talk to people you really have to talk to uh, and use the rest to find that restaurant or where you are in the city. This, I think, you can get away with. And, and you can also record the interviews and then send them out, but you've got to get them out the minute you've finished. And that's not easy in countries where they don't have a consistent internet. The, the other final thing is, of course, it really doesn't come down to any of these things. It's what's supposedly secure. The problem you have, and this is why, again, what I just described does not work in Kazakhstan, is to turn on signal, to turn on Threema, is like starting off a siren in the middle of the desert. It's like, come on, get me. I mean, I'm doing something unusual. They're, they may not pick up what they may not be able to read what you're doing or follow it, but all these technologies leave some kind of residue. They have some kind of signature. I don't know what you call it. They, they're giving away your location. Now, I don't care about these sorts of things. I don't care if the police know where I am. Again, my problem is the witnesses. These are people who, even if they don't care about their own security, I have to because these people really do have lives on the line. They do have family back in China. If 
that their interview leaks, the fact that they even talked leaks, they have a terrible problem. I mean, I don't mean to sound apocalyptic, and uh, I like to look at the bright side of life when I can. But it is terrifying what has happened not only to the system of life that we used to know as nomadism, I mean, people moving around freely, uh, that that is just so vanquished, so destroyed now, but also that it's become so difficult to do this kind of work. The Chinese, for example, and this will be true with Russia in short order as well, they let so few people out now. The amount of people who have made it to the West or Uyghurs who were in the camps, it's about nine, it's 10 people now. Very soon it will be 11. 11 people. This is a million people in the camps. And 11 people have made it to the West. The rest are stuck in places where they do not feel comfortable to speak in. And they're stuck in Turkey in some cases, very few of them, mostly in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, maybe Tajikistan occasionally, uh, a few in Pakistan. This is where they end up. And then they have no way of breaking up. We have to struggle, struggle, interview them. And this is these are skills that if we are, you are doing human rights, you have no choice but to learn them now. People who do human rights, who you know, work on behalf of the International Criminal Court or some interesting international organization, they have to be able to go out and do field work because there is no substitute for it. You can only get so much from documents. What are we to do? How are we supposed to know what's going on in these camps? And the only way to do it is to find the people who got out, and we have to make them secure. You mentioned bringing a witness out of one of the stands. Yeah. Do you have any plans to bring out more? Uh, we're looking into that, yeah. We hope to bring out a couple a couple more. We can't. It's very hard. It's very time-consuming to get people out. It's very risky. They usually cannot, if they have family back in China, they can't, they simply can't do it because their family will pay the price. Now, we've already seen that with some of the journalists. Uh, Gulchera Hoja, for example, works for Radio Free Asia. She's a brilliant investigative reporter. She's the one who started the Aksu hospital investigation. And her whole family's in, in the camps or in prison, basically because of what she's done. Or, you know, that's the retaliation. Uh, now, she's won some awards. She's a wonderful woman. She's a warm-hearted person. And she's absolutely tortured. Uh, we know that uh, Dolkan Issa of the World Uyghur Congress, the president of the World Uyghur Congress, his family's been thrown into the camps. Roshan Abbas, her mother was thrown into the camps, and now her sister. Her sister got a 20-year sentence. It has nothing to do with anything her sister did. It is all about Roshan Abbas as an effective activist. Uyghur activist. This is this is horrible. These are these are horrible things. And so when you talk about getting a witness out, it's not that clean. They have to be a very special person or a very special family who don't have anybody who can really experience you know major retaliation. What should listeners do, knowing what you've told us today in this interview, Ethan? I would encourage people to. Well, I'd encourage people to read. That's the key thing. I mean, I wrote a book. It's not the only book. There's a lot of other good books on this. There's Bloody Harvest. Uh, there's my book, The Slaughter. There's the London China Tribunal. There's various studies. It's very easy to start accumulating this material as soon as you start looking around. And I encourage people to read just one thing, okay? Just one of those. Not the, You don't have to read everything. You can sort of dive into this and feel how solid it is. So that's one thing. I encourage people to start thinking about this problem. We haven't really organized a response to this and this significant change. As I say, it's happened in a very short time. It was eight years ago that I published the book, The Slaughter. The way the world has changed since then in terms of surveillance and the difficulty, as I say, of becoming, you're no longer a human rights guy out there looking for witnesses, you're a spy. You're forced to nearly wear disguises. Now, uh, this wasn't true when I did this a couple of two years ago in Kazakhstan, but now I'd have to figure out a way to change my gait, the style of my walk somehow. Maybe I'd have to break a leg or wear a shoe that was heavier than the other to break up the natural rhythm of the way I walk and slump and so forth. These are incredible challenges 
we don't have a really a concerted response, particularly that involves the intelligence of the world you speak to. Okay. I mean that the natural intelligence and one of the beauties of the tech world has always been that there are these endless arguments and discussions. And we really need one on this is how do we get around this? And I don't want to hear these simple, these really simple solutions. I don't want to hear, Oh, there's just this one wonderful little, you know, super VPN you put in and everything's safe and everything's cool. That's not true. Don't tell me that. Okay. This is really, really hard. This is a wraparound surveillance world. It is a big brother world. And we really, really need to come up with some way of operating that goes off the grid or that can be that can turn off and turn on at exactly the right times or can sense threats or lessons, perhaps that effect, the siren effect that I spoke of, that the minute you turn on signal or threema or even a VPN, it's like the whole system goes, aha, there he is. There's something. We really need some great people to be thinking about this. How can listeners keep in touch with what you're working on next, Ethan? Uh, you know, I'm very primitive. I'm not that easy to reach, but you can contact me on my email. And if I will move it to a more private place, if it's interesting. And my email is eastofethan at yahoo.com. So eastofethan at yahoo.com, I'm there. I can also be reached through the Victims of Communism Foundation. That's where I put my shingle in Washington. Well, thanks for what you're doing, Ethan, to shed some light on what's happening in Xinjiang and Kazakhstan and the effects of the surveillance state as it grows across the world. Ethan Gutman, thanks so much for being on Tectonic today. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the remaining 10 minutes of the show. And then we're going to turn it over to DJ Arb for another great episode of The Arbitrarium. We just heard my interview with Ethan Gutman, author, journalist, and human rights researcher talking about the topic of his 2014 book, The Slaughter, Mass Killings, Organ Harvesting, and China's Secret Solution to Its Dissident Problem, which was at the time mostly focused on the plight of Falun Gong and House Christians in China. And these days he's working on a follow-up book uh, on the same issues that are now affecting the Uyghur Muslim population in the northwest region of Xinjiang in China. Uh, and I, I appreciate Ethan for, uh, thank, thank Ethan for his time and for talking me through the issues at hand with organ harvesting and on the tech angle, how it reveals the new reality of human rights work in those authoritarian states uh, that re require such drastic measures that he just walked us through to bring an analog camera with black and white film and a dictaphone and to try to use some portfolio of secure and encrypted services, possibly in the cloud, possibly not, in order to bring data out, which is, uh, which is much of the battle these days is just the, the movement of data in a in a surveillance state and as ethan said at the very end of the interview it's um there is no app there is no single silver bullet solution that's going to solve all of this and so often the conversations in the technology industry say oh well, you have a problem about a growing surveillance state and you're trying to conduct human rights work well just use this app we've secured series a funding 10 million dollars from Sand Hill Road, and now this app is going to solve all of our problems, and we can go right back to our nice human rights work. And as Ethan says, it does not work that way. It doesn't work that way. Uh, and that's even before we get to the complicity of the tech and finance structure 
worldwide in building the surveillance state in China and beyond. It's not just China. And this is, this is the point I want to leave you with, friends, is that I didn't tell you this, I didn't, I didn't spotlight Ethan Gutman's work in order to simply cast aspersions on the Chinese Communist Party as though, they're only, as though they are the only bad, bad actor. Uh, I think they are pioneering a digital totalitarian surveillance state, the kind of which the world has never seen before. Uh, they have built it with American help. And that sort of surveillance state is growing worldwide, including here in the United States. And so if, if, you, if you look at this research that, that Gutman has done and you listen to his experiences trying to do human rights work undetected, by surveillance state, if you hear that and you go, oh, well, that's interesting, but that'll, that'll never affect me because I, I live in, in the United States. We don't do that kind of thing here. I want you to look around, friends. I want you to look around and pay attention. And as Ethan says, read, 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 read. I put a bunch of uh, links on the playlist at WFMU.org. And one of the things I'd like you to read is uh, this, this story from two days ago in the New York Times, March 26th. The headline is, Arizona offers driver's licenses on iPhones. Other states want to be next. So the story is, the state of Arizona has entered into a new partnership with Apple, with the company that makes iPhones. And what they're doing is, Arizona is now saying, you have the option, if, you, if you're an Arizona citizen, a state resident, I should say, of, of Arizona, you can leave your driver's license at home and just bring the iPhone with you. Isn't that great? You can use your iPhone instead of that old, dusty, printed, non-surveillable driver's license, not easily surveillable driver's license. You can use your iPhone instead as your, as your primary digital identification device, as your, let me say that again, as your primary identification, which it happens to be, just happens to be digital. And it happens to run on an iPhone through this new, wonderful partnership between Apple and Arizona. And, uh, and it is purely for your convenience, only for your convenience, that uh, Arizona uh, gently nudges you and suggests that you, you know, always keep your iPhone with you and always keep it turned on and always keep it, uh, you know, doing whatever it does, purely for your convenience, so that if anyone ever asks for your uh, driver's license, you can show them the phone instead because, you know, it's so much easier, so much easier. Don't you hate the hassle of pulling out your wallet and removing the driver's license card to show to someone? Isn't that just one of the biggest pains in your life? It's so much easier to pull your phone out. And, uh, and, and this way, you know, the, the, uh, the state can just, you know, be, be just for your convenience, can just watch where you are every moment of the day. And um, if you go back and listen to my interview with University of Pennsylvania professor Joe Turo about uh, his book, The Voice Catchers, and you learn about some of the things about voice surveillance that, that big tech companies are doing, Maybe the iPhone picks up your voice some parts of the day and the voice of other people you're talking to and does voice print analysis and sends that to a cloud somewhere. Maybe, you know, maybe this, this partnership with the state of Arizona is, um, well, let's not think too much about it. It's for your convenience. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> that the state wants you to gently nudge you to maybe, would you please keep your surveillance device on your person at all times? And you know where this, ha where this leads, friends, is that today it's offered as a bonus, this amazing benefit that a few people can opt into in a few years if it, gets, if it gets enough traction and there's not enough outcry against this, it's going to become mandatory or effectively mandatory. Oh, you still carry around your, dr your printed driver's license? Don't you know they're phasing that out? What are you going to do without your iPhone? You don't have an iPhone? You don't have an iPhone? You don't have a Google phone? How do you get through life? If you don't hold on to your personal surveillance device that the state of Arizona can monitor at all times, how do you function in society? And that is the surveillance state that we're headed towards. I'm not saying we're headed towards uh, organ harvesting of political dissidents. Thank God. We're, we're not, I don't see any, any signs of that in the, in the, in the U.S., 
But once we, <laughs> once we build a totalitarian surveillance state, friends, a lot of bets are off. I won't say all bets are off, but a lot of bets are off the direction we're headed in. Uh, so keep your eyes open, keep reading, and keep paying attention to what's happening in China because that is the template for what the tech companies and their state sponsors, their state partners, want to bring here. It's dead serious. So thank you to Ethan Gutman and other human rights workers who are braving the digital surveillance states of the growing authoritarian uh, governments around the world. And let's hope that there grows more opposition to the same sort of thing here in the United States. In the meantime, friends, you've been listening to the greatest radio station of the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. And until next week, what I want you to do is, in addition to reading, I want you to avoid Amazon and Apple, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. Stay tuned for the Arbitrarium with ARB. And our outro this evening is a sadly relevant song title. It's called Secretly Measured. Have a good evening and a good week, everybody. Welcome to the Arbitrarium, where jumping ship is the only way out. First thing I'm reminded of is like kind of an extreme provinciality, kind of like the whole world is like our village, and if it's different, we hate it. It only we found it in bright, bright high school.
someone might have found. They, they would really have mainly just their specific locale in mind uh, as a beneficiary or a special interest. Uh, I give an example. Oh, I don't know. Some, some kind of uh, political uh, interest that would that would mainly benefit.
Among the small